Happy, as Cassie said, happy Family Sunday. We love seeing some kiddos in the room. We do this um, because we, City Light Kids is awesome. I know I'm a little biased. I'm married to Miss Cassie. Um, City Light Kids is incredible, but we also see the value in teaching our children how to, uh, teaching our children the language of big church. Teaching our children what does it mean to be incorporated into the church, because for most of their life, that's where they'll be. So here's what I want to do. I want to speak to the kids first. So adults, all have to shut your ears off. Kiddos, we need you in this gathering, and we, we need you guys here, because Jesus told adults that we need to become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. So you teach us what it means to love Jesus and have fun and sing and dance, so we need you here. Now, kids, turn your ears off, just to the adults. We are not at the opera. This is a family gathering. And so I just want to already say, if there's crying or fussiness or fidgeting, I used to be the guy that would be like, come on, get your kid in order. Then I had a kid. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how wrong I have been. (laughs) And so we are here as a family. And so if there's some fussiness... We are excited about that, and we love, love, love to see children in the gathering. So we just want to, there's no feeling of like, oh gosh, I'm the JV parent and things like that. It's not like that at all. We're so excited to have our families with us. If you would flip your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, that's where we'll be this morning. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, I'm just going to read this for you guys, and then we can get into Luke 22. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what Hebrews 4 does is it gives us two categories, that you're able to be tempted and not sin. It tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. So C.S. Lewis explained it like this. Like a great windstorm, if you've ever walked into head-on wind, that we're walking through. That's what temptation is. And you and I, no matter what, we fall in the windstorm. Our knees get weak and we fall to the ground. That's when we sin, when we fail. What it means for Jesus to be tempted and not sin is that Jesus Christ walked through the windstorm of temptation for his whole life as the wind got stronger and stronger and never once fell. He never once fell. So he knows exactly the temptation that we've been through and more so because he's been through it and never once fell. He never sinned. So why do I tell you that? Well, I tell you that this morning because what we're going to see is Jesus being tempted. But it's totally unlike any temptation that we see anywhere else in the Bible. We've seen Jesus be tempted before, right? You think back to Luke 4, Jesus is externally tempted by Satan. We've seen him be tempted multiple times in his ministry, but this is the only time, the only time where the temptation of Jesus is not external, but it's internal. There is a temptation and a conflict and a tension inside of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the first time ever and for the first time that we will see again, he has a temptation internally conflicted inside of him. And this morning we have a fairly weighty text. It's a heavy text. And the reason why it's heavy is because the root of the conflict, the root of what Jesus is tempted over, the root of it is about whether or not you or I go to hell. The temptation of Jesus, what we read about this morning, is him fighting 
an end result that will decide whether you and I even have a chance not to go to hell. Thomas Watson explained eternity like this. If we were to take the entire earth and cover it in three feet of gravel, so three feet of gravel covering the entire earth, and once every thousand years, a bird was allowed to come to the earth, take one pebble of gravel, and fly away with it, then by the time that the entire earth was rid of gravel, all of it was gone. Once every thousand years, one pebble gone. Time and eternity will have just begun in heaven or hell. And the conflict this morning in Jesus is all about that. And so what I want to do as we're getting into that, I want us to understand kind of what's happening. This is the last night of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And Austin preached last week about the institution of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus gets all the disciples together and institutes the Lord's Supper. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And from that point until now, the book of John, chapter 13, tells us that Jesus sent Judas away, said, what you're going to go do, do it quickly. Judas leaves, which means that Jesus' betrayal is at hand. He's going to be betrayed. It's, it's in motion. It's going to happen. And then he looks at his disciples, and he says, where I'm going, you can't come. So if you think about the disciples for a minute, if you were a disciple, for three years you've been following this man with incredible danger surrounding you and building as you continue. And every time, every time you're safe because Jesus is with you. But now something's changed. He says, where I'm going, you cannot go. And so as was their custom, Jesus would preach in the temple in the mornings, and then he'd go to the Garden of Gethsemane at night. And just like their custom, they go to the garden but for one final time. This is the last time that they will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it starts up, it picks up in verse 39. So again, Luke 22 is where we're at. Verse 39 says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The weight of the world right now is on the disciples in Jesus, so it seems. The one, who, one of the 12 who's been with them since the beginning has left to betray Christ. And he says, where I'm going, you can't come. So all of the relational hurt and emotional um, betrayal that they're feeling, they're all feeling this together. So it's, it's easy to see why Jesus would say, pray that you do not enter into temptation. Because every temptation in the world would be crashing in on them as everything seems to be falling apart. But what I want you to notice is that up to this point, Jesus is experiencing the same thing as the disciples. He's experiencing the same temptation, the temptation of being betrayed, or the temptation that will come from being betrayed, the weight of all that, the conflict that comes from it. But Luke wants us to know that Jesus separates himself to do something different. In verse 41, it says, And he withdrew from them, Luke, being the doctor, wants to be really specific and scientific, about a stone's throw, you know, about that far, and knelt down and prayed. So Luke's trying to point something out to us here, is that Jesus, although he was experiencing all the same things, he separates because he has an entirely different fight that he needs to fight. An agony that, he needs, that he's fighting and experiencing that these men will never experience, that you and I will never experience. And here's what he says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see something here? I want you to see what seems to be Jesus disagreeing with the Father's will. He says, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. And that seems off to us because we know that in the inner workings of the Trinity that there has never been a disagreement, right? Well, what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to ask six questions. Six six questions of this prayer that I think will help us to understand what's going on here. And that's our first question. Our first question is, were the Son and the Father on different pages? Like, were they not on the same page with what was to happen? Because it certainly seems that way. Remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. It seems as though they are disagreeing. Is the Son disagreeing with what the Father's will is? And to answer that question, I want to take us back about 1,400 years to a controversy in church history called monothelitism. If you just fell asleep, wake back up, we're back in it. Monothelitism, the monothelite controversy, heresy, here's what happened. The early church was very, very concerned, as they should be, with understanding the person of Jesus. And so in the early church, like the first few centuries, all the controversy was about how is it possible that Jesus is both man and God. And the orthodox teaching still to this day is that he's truly God, he's fully God, fully man in one person. Two natures, one person. Your standard Christian theological math. One plus one equals one. And what happened from that is that the monothelites started to say, okay, if he's two natures but one person, then that must mean that Jesus has only one will. One will. So one drive, ambition, he has one will. And that was condemned as heresy for a lot of reasons, but for our sake, the simplest form to explain it would be because a nature has to have a will. Otherwise, it's not a nature. A nature by nature has a will. And so the orthodox teaching from the late 7th century until now, is that in Jesus, in that union of God and man, the two natures of one person, that Jesus has two wills. Two wills. That's important for us because it means that Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was never in contradiction to the Father's will in his divine nature. But his human will was terrified about what was to come, what he was sent to do. What we see in Luke 22 is that Jesus' human will is in misery because he's saying, the thing you sent me to do, I don't want to do it. The internal conflict inside of Jesus. So no, the Son and the Father were not on different pages. Jesus' will, he was in temptation and conflict about do I do this thing I was sent to do? Here's my second question. Why was Jesus so afraid of the crucifixion? Why was he so afraid of the crucifixion? We know that it's painful. We know that it was horrible. But here's the problem that I have with it. In church history, we have records of thousands and thousands and thousands of martyrs. People have given their lives for the glory of Christ in horrible ways. Here's a few examples. In the first couple centuries, there was a man named Polycarp, who was an older man, a great saint of the faith. He was just—he was an incredible man. And Polycarp was defending the nature of Christ, that God and man union. 
and was going to be killed for it, burned at the stake alive. And the people came to Polycarp and they said, his persecutors, and said, Polycarp, just recant. You're an old man. We don't want to kill an old man. And he looked at them with a smile on his face and said, Christ has been faithful to me for 86 years. How dare I blaspheme him now? And he was burned alive. And the record is, is that he was singing hymns with joy the whole time. A story I told a few, a few weeks ago at the Salt Company is a slave girl in the ancient church named Felicitas. Felicitas was a slave girl who was pregnant, and she wouldn't offer sacrifices to the emperor because she served one king, Jesus. And she was to be mauled by beasts in the Colosseum. And for whatever reason, they allowed her to give birth before they persecuted her. And as she's giving birth, and they watch the misery of that, the guards are mocking her, saying, you'll never last in there because we saw how much pain you were in here. And she said to them, yes, I'm suffering here, but when I'm in there, there will be another suffering for me because I suffer for him. And the story of Felicitas goes that as she's being mauled for hours by beasts, most men lasted only minutes, hours. Her final request was that she could tie her hair up because a sign of that, because drooping hair was a sign of mourning. And this was a great moment of joy for her. So here's my question. If those are some of the heroes of the faith, who gave their life for the glory of Christ, are we really to say that the champion of our faith was, was sweating blood in a garden because of some silly Roman spears and a cross? I'm not deducing what the cross was. It was miserable and horrible, and you drowned in your own blood as you hung there. But was Jesus brought to that level of agony because of the cross? There can be no way that that's the case. And I think what Luke 22 shows us is that what Jesus was facing, what he was facing was a temptation that you and I would never be able to handle. With these people, the reason why they could go to their deaths with joy was be, because of the fight that Jesus fought here. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus was worried about what's in the cup. So my third question, what's in the cup? The Old Testament has some references to this cup. And I just wanted to share a few so we can get an idea of what is in the cup. Jesus is agonizing. A, a, an angel comes to help him, and he is in agony, sweating like drops of blood. More agony than you and I will ever experience under the supernatural help of angels. And it's all over this cup. Father, remove this cup from me. Here's what Psalm 75 says about the cup. It says, at the set time that I appoint, this is, I will judge with equity. This is God speaking. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck, for not from the east or from the west, not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. Kids, dregs are like when you get in trouble at the restaurant for drinking and you're out of drink. Dregs means it's empty. Dregs. Drain it down to its dregs. The cup is the cup of God's judgment. His wrath. 
poured out on the wicked, the boastful. It's his holy, righteous indignation towards sin poured out on the wicked. Here's one more in Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. The cup of God's wrath. Now maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I've read the Old Testament, and if that's wickedness, I don't think that I'm wicked. Or I think even of my neighbors, who are really, maybe you're thinking of your neighbors, who are delightful people, there's no way that that would be warranted for them, the cup of God's wrath, even if they don't know Jesus. There's no way that they're wicked. And what I want to do is I want to tell you two stories, two stories that Jesus told that might help us understand this. The first one is the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was rich and a young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he bows before him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Kind of a bizarre thing for Jesus to say because he's not only God alone, but he's good. But what Jesus is doing in the story of the rich young ruler, he's like a prize fighter. Every time the rich young ruler gives him something, he dodges it and hits him with it. what this guy really needs. So what Jesus is saying is you have no idea what it means to be good. You come to me and call me good teacher, you don't even have a definition of the word good. But But he doesn't say that. He says, follow the commandments. The guy says, bet. Which ones? And he says, He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't lie, don't steal, honor your father and mother. The the tale six of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't give the first four about his relationship to God. He doesn't give the first one. Love the, you shall serve no other gods but me. He just gives the tale six. And the rich young ruler stands back and he says, sweet, I've done all those since my youth. No joke, that's what this guy says. Do you think he was right? I know myself, I know people, I doubt it. And so Jesus could have easily just walked him through all of it. There's no way you followed all of these commandments. There's no way, but he doesn't say that. He sidesteps it and hits him with this. He says, go sell all that you have. It's because Jesus knew something. He gave him that first commandment again. He looked in the eyes and said, you have another God. You think, I don't deserve this, I'm not wicked. Why would the cup of God's wrath... Psalm 75, what was their problem? They were boastful. They made themselves their God. That's all it takes. Anyone, made a, anyone worshiped a God besides God himself? I know I have. So many times this week. And every single time that we do that, the cup of wrath is filled for us. We should drink the cup of judgment. That's what we've earned. That's what we've earned through serving other gods. I'll give you one more story. Um, Jesus told the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This guy's walking along the road, gets beat up by robbers. He's left naked, unconscious. There's some Jews walking along. They do the classic, don't want to talk to this neighbor, so I'm going to walk across the street. Not just pretend that I don't see that. Who are the wicked people in the story? The robbers, obviously, but the people who ignore the guy laying on the road. You and I don't just sin because we do things that are wrong. 
We sin because we don't do things that are right. And if God were to reveal to us everything that you have chosen not to do or not done that was right, we would be overwhelmed to the point of death on its own. And so what I want you to see here is that the conflict in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, here's what it is, is that there's one of two ways that that cup is going to be drank. You are going to drink it, I'm going to drink it, we drink it, or Jesus drinks it for us. Your neighbor, one of two ways, they drink it or Jesus drinks it for them. The tribe of villagers on the other side of the world that hasn't heard the gospel yet, why do we go to them? Because there's one of two things that are going to happen. They drink it or Jesus drinks it for them. And this conflict, this tension, this battle, church, was Jesus saying, I don't know if I want to do it. Because the wrath of God would pour down upon him for you and I. Our victory was won in the resurrection. And our atonement was made. The sacrifice for our atonement was won on Golgotha, on the cross. But the battle was fought in Gethsemane. The battle was fought here as Jesus decided, will I do it or not? Fourth question I want to ask is why would this be such a, why was Jesus so agonized about the cup? Why was he so agonized about the cup? If you notice in this text, it says the word pray a lot. He tells the disciples to pray that you may not enter temptation. He withdrew from them, knelt down and prayed. Being in agony, he prayed all the more. When he got done praying, he went to them and told them the same thing. Rise and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The word for pray, the word used five times here, is prosukamai. If you fell asleep again, we can wake back up. Prosukamai would be the Greek for praying. But the prefix of that word, pros, means with, but it also means toward. Okay, So like when you pray, when you prosukamai, it means you are with, you're going toward God to be with him. So you're with God toward him. So all these times Jesus is telling them to go to God, he's going to God. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God. You know what the word with is there? Pros. It's pros. So not only was Jesus with God for all of eternity, trillions and trillions and trillions of years, but he was toward him. They were face to face. They were with toward one another for all of eternity perfectly in relationship with one another the father the son and the spirit never a hint of sin never a single chasm between them never anything but perfect enjoyment and love and union with one another perfectly enjoying one another's company why would he be terrified because for the first time to ever in all of eternity, what it would mean for Jesus to drink the cup of wrath is that while the judgment of God poured down upon him, he'd look to his father and not see his face. The perfect, sinless, spotless man who deserved nothing but righteous exoneration and glory would drink a cup that you and I filled and face the wrath of God and then when he would look to his father, he would not be there. 
Why was Jesus terrified of the cup? Because the Father would turn his face away. Because he would not be there. He would be separated from the Father for the first time ever. That's the fourth question. My fifth question is then what did he decide to do? What did he do? He's in this conflict, in this, tempta- in this temptation. What did he decide to do? In verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He rose from prayer. His time was at hand. We know what he decided. He decided that he would drink the cup for us. Now, I like to think, part of me thinks that he was like, do I need to do it? And then he turned around and the guys he just told to pray were asleep. And he was like, yep, there's no other way. But we know that's not true. We know the truth is that like always, because Jesus' food and drink was to do the will of the Father who sent him. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the Father's will. He was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush him. And so he submitted to the Father's will. And from that point on, it was set. There was no more conflict or temptation. Jesus was set to drink the cup for you and I. I've used this illustration before, but there, I've, and I didn't, I didn't think of it, but I've yet to find an illustration that seems to produce more gratitude in my heart for what was done. I want you to imagine that you looked out your window at home, and off in the distance a few miles, there's a wall. that just looks like it's going up and up and up and never ends. So you drive to the wall to figure out what on earth is going on. You look up and you just see no end to it. It's like, how on earth am I going to get, like, what is this? Like this? And then you look left, this would be your left, left and right, and there seems to be no end. They just go into the horizon. Behind that wall is water, millions and millions of billions of gallons of water. It's not a wall, it's a dam. And so as you're turning to go back to your car, you hear cracking in the wall. You turn around and look, and the dam bursts, and like a raging torrent, billions of gallons of water come rushing straight at you. There's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere that you can hide. You're going to die. And right before the water hits you, the ground opens up and swallows every last drop. So not even an ounce of water can get your sock wet. And when Jesus drank the cup of wrath to its dregs, he turned the cup over and declared, it is finished. It's finished. Jesus drank the cup. If you're in here, and this is maybe the first time there's ever been an affection stirred in you of, oh my goodness, One person's going to drink the cup. It's either me or Jesus. And maybe for the first time in your life, you feel to yourself, I can't. I don't want to drink this cup. Run to Jesus Christ for salvation. He will drink it. He did drink it. He drank the cup and declared, it's finished. The last question that I want to ask is, well, what am I supposed to do with that? What are we to do with that information? I want you to believe it. You're like, sweet, that was easy. I want you to believe it. Believe it to be true. Anytime, if I ever were to feel to myself 
and my affection's not there for my earthly dad, all I would have to do is look at all that he did to sacrifice himself for our good. And if you believe this to be true, no matter where you are at, this will be the truth that we are proclaiming forever and eternity. Is that why would he come for me? Why would he come for you? There's no reason except that he did and he drank the cup for you. With no warrant, you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, he decided to come and drink the cup for you. I want you to believe it like you would believe it if you were about to get creamed by a cement truck flying down the highway and somebody pushes you out of the way and takes it themselves. Believe that like you tell other people about that. I want you to believe it like then if you went and saw somebody else who was about to get hit. The wrath of God is coming. People will drink the cup. I want you to believe it like live it. Spurgeon said, if people are going to go to hell, let them go leaping over our bodies, grasping onto their ankles, begging them not to, praying for them to stay. I want you to believe it. And every moment you wonder yourself, if you have to face any condemnation for your sin, I want you to believe it, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Praise God that he sent his son to drink the cup for us. Praise Jesus that in this moment, he didn't fall to sin. He obeyed his father's will. He went to that cross and he drank the cup on that cross so that you and I can have life. Praise God.